victory yesterday over Iowa State. But this, this football team was Kansas State, not a popular team, not a good football program. Since 1954, they had only had two seasons of having a winning record. Okay, not, not a good team, all right? Um, Bill Snyder, it was a uh, disciple of Hayden Fry and was hired as the coach of the Kansas State football program. All his friends and those who knew the, the industry well gave him some advice. Don't take the job, right? Do not take that job. It is not a popular school. It is not a football school. There won't be success while you're there. Well, he was hired in 89. He retired in 06, was rehired a couple years later, and finally retired in 2018, and will shortly be inducted, if he hasn't already been, into the College Football Hall of Fame. He has earned himself this nickname, the architect of the greatest turnaround in football, college football history. It's quite the nickname. You can imagine that on the back of your shirt. The architect of the greatest college football turnaround in history. Okay? He, he established one winning season after another under his leadership. One bowl victory after another. Not a popular school, but Bill Snyder turned it around. Folks, the topic that we're talking about this morning is that of generosity, okay? Likewise, this is not a popular topic to speak about at church, okay? In fact, there's many of you who, had you known that the message was going to be on generosity, you may have chosen to go somewhere else, possibly. Hopefully not. What Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 is he turns the negative connotation with generosity completely around. And he makes this topic an incredibly practical, incredibly useful topic for us now. These two chapters in 2 Corinthians are dedicated to giving. One of Paul's emphasis on his third missionary journey was taking up a relief offering for the poor Christians that were struggling back in Jerusalem. And encouraging the Corinthians to give, he was not only hoping to bring relief to these poor folks struggling in Jerusalem, but he was also hoping to build unity between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers. Unfortunately, the message was difficult for the church at Corinth to fully embrace. They were not doing their part. The church had many problems. As we see, he wrote two letters to them, and you'll see one problem after another. And a reluctance to give was certainly one of them. So Paul makes his appeal in these two chapters at the highest spiritual level possible. He shows them that giving, that generosity, is an act of grace. It is the working out of grace in the human heart. So in these two chapters, we really have one primary claim that will be this week and next week, and it's simply this. Because of God's grace, we give. Because of God's grace, we give. This morning, to, to help us see this, I'm going to show you, first we learn the knowledge of grace, then we will see two examples of grace, and then finally we'll consider an act of grace. So first up, the knowledge of grace. 
Christians are, to be sure, a hopeful people. I started off reading Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We are a hopeful people. There are things that we pray for. There are things that we give our lives to, things that we long to see God do on this earth. We also have a hope that is rooted in a confidence, right? That one day God will put all things back the way they are supposed to be. We are a hopeful people to be sure. But we are also a knowledgeable people, right? That hope is not a hope that's, that's rooted or disguised in ignorance, right? We are a knowledgeable people. And Paul points that out in this first couple of words in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are a knowledgeable people who know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It can be said that Christians really are experts on grace. We can open up this book and we can read line after line after line of God's grace. We can study his grace. We can examine, we can be taught, we can listen to messages about his grace. But it's not just the grace that we know it's a grace that we know because we have experienced it, right? We are experts in grace. All of our lives are all of grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Charles Spurgeon talks about grace and he calls it the fountainhead of salvation. For all of our life comes from the grace of God. So what I want to do this morning is spend a few moments just standing around the waters of grace, staring in to the pure water of life, into the depths of these waters that proceed from the throne of God, and just consider for a moment the grace of God exactly what Paul does in these two chapters is grace comes at the very center and his appeal to get this church to be a church that gives generously he puts God's grace at the very beginning of the conversation the grace of God is the most powerful and the most personal force in all of the universe it lifts you up right where you are and brings you to where God wants you to be it has the power to do something that nothing else in this world can do and that's change the human heart in our fallen world filled with people who are struggling and searching, who are sinful and selfish, this grace is the one thing every single one of us needs right now. Let's consider for a moment this grace. Five types. I just want to point out five types of grace. Not an exhaustive list, but hopefully a helpful one. First and foremost, there's the grace of forgiveness. We all do wrong. The Bible says that we are all sinners, and that leaves each and every one of us guilty. The only thing that guilty people deserved is to be condemned and punished unless they're forgiven and declared guilt-free. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ went to the cross to carry our sin, to bear our punishment so we could experience comprehensive and complete forgiveness. 
In Jesus Christ, we're forgiven for everything we've done, that what we're doing right now, that which we will do, and all that we've left undone. He offers us, by his grace, forgiveness. And the more you consider your need for grace, the, the more you consider your need for forgiveness, the more glorious and majestic his grace becomes. So we have the grace of forgiveness, but we also have the grace of acceptance. He doesn't just forgive us. God embraces us. He welcomes us home. He holds us close. He calls us his own. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. His grace brings us home, accepts us as his own. While sin separates us from the Father, God's grace brings us back. So we have the grace of forgiveness, the grace of acceptance. We also have the grace of progress. God's not simply content to give us salvation and leave us put right where we are. Rather, he goes to work in us and through us to make us more and more like his son. When remaining sin leaves us lame and weak and unable, God's grace intervenes and gives us the power to overcome that sin and to resist temptation. For many of us, this right here, this grace of progress can be frustrating. If you've walked this path for long, you'll have this idea of what the Christian life looks like and then you'll be confronted immediately with where you are right now. And the temptation can be to grow frustrated at a lack of progress. Folks, I implore you this morning to remember how far you have come. To look into your life, to look into your past and see evidence of God's grace along the way. You are a product of it. And he has invited you on a path where he will continue to pour it out. Philippians 2, 13 and 14. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? This progress, this growth is something that we should labor towards. But then comes verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Even the growth that you see, that you want, it is a product of God's grace, not of your effort or your ability. He invites you to work with him as he carries out the work that he started in you. We also have the grace of freedom. God's grace delivers us. Sin turns us into addicts where we're slaves to it. But God's grace breaks the bondage. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Grace comes into our life and it liberates us. It frees us from the power and the force that sin has over us. It's a freeing grace. Finally, we see the grace of completion. The promise that what God has started in you, he will finish. A day is coming when you and I will be fully restored to who we were meant to be. No more sin. No more struggle. No more pain, no more problems. Everything will be restored and we will worship in the presence of this amazing God of grace. First Peter 5 and 10 says, 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What God has planned for you is, again, the work of his grace. Don't be mistaken. All that we are and all that we have in Christ is because of his grace. It is the fountainhead of all salvation. So Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, reminds them over and over and over again of the grace that they have received, all that they have been given because of Jesus. And he provides them with two helpful examples that they should follow. The first one we see right there. It's the obvious one in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And encouraging the Corinthians in their expression of grace, Paul tells them to look to Christ, to follow his example. He is the preeminent example of grace for the believer. Christ gives to us, so we give to him and to others. That's the way it works. First, we have to understand, first and foremost, that Christ was rich. He gave up something. Paul says he was rich. The Bible tells us he is rich in his person, for he is the eternal God. He's rich in his possessions, for he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's rich in his position as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To this day, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he's rich in his power. There's nothing he can't do, right? There is no power that can conquer him. Rather, he is the Lord full of immeasurable riches. Yet, for you and for me, He freely gave those up. There's nobody more richer than Jesus is. Does everybody understand that today? There's nobody who has more under their power and in their control than King Jesus. He is the Lord of lords. Yet for your sake, the Bible tells us he emptied, this rich Jesus emptied himself. He took for himself a human, a frail body, subjected himself to human suffering. He left the throne of God for a feeding trough of animals. He gave up royalty and began, became a servant. We know as we study his life that he was born in a borrowed manger, that he preached from a borrowed boat. This Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal with his closest friends, guess what, around a borrowed table in a borrowed room. After they crucified him, hung him up on the cross, and buried his body, guess where he went? Into a borrowed grave. This man, the richest man, the creator of the universe, lived this life, died his death with nothing, gave it all up for you. And for me, listen to the description we get in Isaiah 53. It tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
He was esteemed not. He was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led to the slaughter, this rich Jesus, like a lamb. This is who he became. Why? Paul tells us, so that in his poverty, this is a glorious transfer, an amazing transfer, you might become rich. Because of his ultimate sacrifice, we are now rich in him. We who were slaves to sin, spiritually bankrupt, and in immersed in poverty, now share in the immeasurable riches of Christ. We are now children of God, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Many who talk about grace and describe what grace is come up with that cute little, is it a cross stick, right? Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's exactly what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 is telling us. That's what grace is. God's riches that we receive come at the expense of Christ, what he gave up. And as we consider the grace of God that we have received, how can we then refuse others? How can we then refuse to give generously? Folks, consider what you have received in Christ. As we look at the cross and the grace that we've received, the only appropriate response is to give. Is to give our time. Is to give our money. Is to give our ambition, our effort, our energy. To give our lives. And that's exactly what the second example does. He gives them the ultimate example. And then he gives them the Macedonians. A really Really good example. If you look further up in the chapter, verses 1 through 5, he provides an example for this church at Corinth to follow. Listen to this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. I don't know if you caught that. Let me read it one more time. You've heard about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. The picture that Paul is painting of this, these churches in Macedonia is that as grace came down to these churches, it did not come down alone. As God poured out his graces on this church of Macedonia, he didn't just pour out graces. That, that grace that came down also brought, did you hear it? Affliction. Affliction. It brought affliction, persecution, and trouble. Grace brought, in, for the church of Macedonia, brought problems. It brought problems. But in the midst of their problems, do you see what else they've received as a result of grace? 
Bible says they received an abundance of joy in the midst of their persecution. Those two things usually for the Western mind and our mind today don't go together, right? Immense persecution and abundance of joy. The joy is rooted in grace, and this is the key, not in the freedom from trouble. Their joy is rooted. Its foundation is the grace of God. Its source is the grace of God, not the circumstances around them. Their affliction is severe, but their joy is abundant. Folks, I remind you this morning, don't give your circumstances too much power. Following Jesus is more powerful and it is far deeper and has more to offer than your circumstances ever will. Your circumstances cannot rob God of his glory and it will not take from you your joy. When you have received his grace, it overflows in abundance of joy. And it's bad enough that they're dealing with affliction. He goes on to tell us that they're also dealing with poverty. God's grace didn't just remove, didn't remove their difficulties. It produced abundance of joy, which ultimately spilled over into them being a generous church. When uh, Todd, can never say his last name properly, was here with the traveling team, Errant, I think, I went to the Sunday night thing that he talked about at church, uh, that he talked about God's heart for the world. And, and he said something I haven't been able to get out of my mind since then. Basically, he said, hey, listen, more money can do a lot, right? If we were to look at our church, maybe, or even Faith Academy, and we were to think of maybe some of our needs here as a people, um, we would say, hey, more money is the answer, right? More money can do a lot. But there's something more money will never do. More money, he said, will never make a selfish heart more generous. Only the grace of God can do that. Say it one more time. More money will never make a selfish heart more generous. Only the grace of God can do that. If you keep reading into verse 3 of chapter 8. For they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of... They're begging Paul to allow them to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem, to meet the needs of their poor brothers and sisters who are struggling. They're begging him, take more money from us. Allow us to be more generous. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What an example. These are poor, persecuted people giving all that they have, wanting to give more. The assumption that could be made, because Paul had to kind of say, hold up, right, is that they're actually taking risks with their giving. There's a chance that as they look at how much they have received and how much they give, that they might be asking, do, can we afford this, right? They're, they're taking risks with their giving. Their, their giving wasn't coerced. It wasn't manipulated. They wanted to give. They begged to be able to give. They gave first to the Lord and to those in need. They were so gripped by the Lord and the grace that he had poured down in them. Their, their giving was not just the result of grace. 
It was also an act of it. There's a story told of a preacher who one time asked one of his members, a, a farmer, he said, uh, if you had 100 pigs, would you give 25 of them? The farmer said, we'll call him Farmer John. Farmer John said, yes, absolutely. If I had 100 pigs, I would most certainly give 25. He pressed in a little bit more. Okay, let's imagine now that you have 50 pigs. Would you give 30 of those pigs? Farmer John said, yes, come on, man. You know, I'm a generous dude. I would give 30 pigs if I had 50. Preacher asked one more question. He said, Farmer John, if you had two pigs, would you give one? Farmer John said, hold up, preacher. You know I only have two pigs, right? I, you know, I've only got two pigs. How am I going to give one away? The idea is we can, it's very easy for us to be hypothetically generous, Right? It is very easy for us to be hypothetically generous. If I had, fill in the blank, pigs, money, time, whatever. If I had all of that, it'd be real easy for me to give. But as we get closer to what God has actually placed in our hands, it's easier for our fingers to find their way around it. And to say, hold up now. That's all I got. Lastly, so he gives us two really helpful examples of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate, and the Macedonian church. A wonderful example to follow. This is the result, he says, of grace at work in a church. Now there's an assumption as we consider this acts of grace, uh, if you read through the, the passage, um, again, the word grace comes up multiple times, and there's this phrase, act of grace. See that you excel in this act of grace. The act of grace that he's referring to is the act of giving. It's, it's, it's the result of grace. The generosity that comes that he's trying to promote and encourage within them, it is the act of grace that's bringing it about. Now, there's an assumption that can be made in the argument that he's using here. And it's the assumption that the knowledge that we gain actually informs and directs our actions. Okay? Paul is assuming, and, and I am too, and this is probably a radical assumption, that the more we learn, the more about the grace of our Lord Jesus, the more it results in action, in obedience, right? Grace is unmerited favor. It is favor from the Lord that we have not earned and deserved. It does not, however, excuse us from acting, and oftentimes, people can get that twisted. They can think, well, I've received so much. It's not based on my works or what I do. And so it alleviates me from the responsibility to actually do something. Well, Paul, the assumption he's making is that the more we learn and reflect on the grace that we have received, that, that this obedience of our faith will flow from that knowledge. It's an assumption that we should be able to make. However, it's not always the case. This is not the point. The story of the Good Samaritan, someone asks Jesus what he must do to e inherit eternal life. And, and Jesus points him back to the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and, and your neighbor as yourself. And so the man presses in again. Well, define for me who is my neighbor then. And he tells them the story of the Good Samaritan. He tells them a story in which he deliberately chose an offensive character, a Samaritan heretic of mixed race as the hero. God cares, and the point is, God cares about how we live. He's concerned 
with how you act out your faith, who you care for. The people who passed by the man who was broken down on the side of the road, they knew all the right answers, right? They had no shortage of knowledge. They had all of the right doctrine, but zero of the right action. And that, unfortunately, is the problem that many of us find ourselves in, right? That as we learn and as we grow, the temptation can be to just simply sit and reflect. And that is good. We did that for the whole first point, okay? We reflect on what we've received. But God calls us then also to act. He calls us to act. There's really this amazing thing that happens when you take the knowledge, when you understand the grace that you've received, and you take that grace and you allow yourself to be a channel by which God then blesses those around you, cares for your neighbor, makes disciples of the nations. When you see yourself as a conduit of God's grace, there's an amazing thing that happens. Just point it out. I'm going to read a couple verses in Ephesians chapter 2 just kind of in close. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us, uh, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Did you hear that? Let me read one more time. And raised him up, seated him, us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in, the, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's all of grace. Make no mistake about it. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. It doesn't come to you because you've earned it. It's a gift. Receive it, right? So that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we certainly are saved for good works. From Dubuque, and for those of you a little Iowa history here, another, I try to avoid sports illustrations. I really do, people, but I had to kind of, this, this one worked, okay? Um, Dubuque Senior High School, you may or may not know this. Maybe I've shared this before. I don't even remember. Anyways, Dubuque Senior High School um, it is the would, he be, would the school be the alma mater and he would be the alumni? Is that right? He's the alma, okay, just making sure I got it right here. Is the alma mater of one Jay Burwanger, okay? Now, Jay Burwanger is notorious and, and historical because he's the first ever recipient of, at that time, I believe it was called the Downtown Athletic Club Trophy, uh, but now you refer to it as the Heisman Trophy. So he's the first ever receiver of the Heisman Trophy, the most pre prestigious um, trophy award that a college football athlete can receive. Jay Burwanger from Dubuque, Iowa. 
He ended up, you know, not going into the NFL because he got into some sort of a sort of a arbitrary like negotiation with his contract, and he kind of rejected some some of the money that I think one of these teams put out. So he never ended up playing in the NFL. Didn't really make that much of his name for himself outside of the fact that he's the first recipient of the Heisman Trophy Award. If you were to this day, growing up, I always played. I went to a rival Dubuque Hempstead, and so we would walk in to play basketball into Dubuque Senior High School gymnasium. And as you would walk through those doors, you would walk through the doors, and the first thing you would see is this massive display case. And in this massive display case, they would have a lot of their trophies. There wasn't that many because they weren't that good. But they had some trophies, all right, of what they had received athletically throughout the years. And there, the centerpiece, with all the lights shining on it, was not the real deal, but it was a replica of the Heisman Trophy. Apparently, the real one was used by, like, his auntie as a doorstop. She didn't even know what it was for years, okay? But... There, in this display case, you see the Heisman Trophy. And the intent in putting that display case right there for, for people to walk through, for all the opponents, the visitors of the school to walk through, they would be able to see all that the school has accomplished, right? The first ever Heisman Trophy right here. This school is bad, right? You're messing with the wrong school, right? This display case displayed all the glories of that school. Folks, you and I are like the display cases for the Lord. He deposits in us. He gives us freely by his grace, grace upon grace upon grace. He forgives us. What grace that is. He receives us and accepts us. It's amazing grace. He pardons us. He calls us. He uses us. He completes us. He works in us. Grace upon grace upon grace. We are living and breathing display cases for the glory of the Lord. So that when people look at us and they see us in our generosity, for example, or our good works, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, they would give glory to the Lord who did it through us. We are the display cases of the creator of the universe. You could also say we are the display graces. We are the display graces of Jesus himself. So the call for us this morning is to first reflect on the grace that we've received. Because be not mistaken, you have received grace upon grace upon grace. And as we reflect on that, the second challenge then is to ask ourselves a very important question because there should not be a separation between knowledge and action. Those two should inform one another. So to reflect first on what we've received and secondly, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with all that God has given us? And think about what's in your hands, okay? Not what's hypothetically after a degree or when you finally get situated or when you finish paying off this or paying off that. Think about what you have right now. Time, money, energy, effort, ambition. And the question is, he's giving you wonderful examples. This is what Jesus did for you, the church at Macedonia. You, and I want you to think... Next week, we'll probably spend some more time thinking corporately as a church. But just personally right now, I want you to think, what are you going to do with what's sitting in your hands? 
So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give us a few moments. I know there's not kids stuff, and so we've got kids in here. But I just want a few moments of quiet reflection, okay? Just you and the Lord, just doing business with the Lord. And I want you to do, those are your two assignments. Assignment number one, reflect on what you've received. All the grace that God has given you. And I want to give you an opportunity if you're here this morning and you think to yourself, what is this grace he's talking about? What does it mean to follow Jesus or to be a Christian? If you've never received grace, I'm going to give you an opportunity. There will be some leaders in the back who would love to pray with you and give you the opportunity to receive the grace and the riches of Christ this morning. The second thing I want you to do is to consider what you have in your hands. What is God calling you to do? And it doesn't matter how old you are. There's no excuse. Like he doesn't say, oh, at this age, that's when I expect things. And obedience doesn't kick in until then. No, it doesn't work like that. Just reflect on what you've received. And step number two, what's God calling you to do with that? So I'll give you two minutes. If you would like to pray with somebody on either of those issues, there'll be people in the back and um, you know, I would just ask to invite you to come back there and I'd love, there'll be leaders that we could love to pray with you. Let me pray for us now and then they'll provide some quiet music in the background. Thank you. Um, and then just spend some time reflecting. Father God, Lord, as we just are here this morning, your word reminds us of all that you've given us. Lord, the riches that you've given up for us and the riches that you have blessed us with. Lord, I pray that just like Paul used these words to, to remind the church at Corinth, not just of who they are, but what they're called to do, Lord, I pray you would use your word to do the same thing to us as a people. Lord, show us what we've received. Lord, and give us real clear steps on how we can give and be a generous people.